bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 15th, 2015. In our general news section today, I'll share information about two bills that could affect how the federal government will deal with the debt ceiling and other federal obligations. I'll also talk about the status of tax extenders in Congress and what a group of more than 2,000 organizations had to say about tax extenders and economic growth. In our affordable housing section, I'll have a report from the Congressional Budget Office on federal housing assistance programs and a range of options on how they can be changed or eliminated. Then, I'll talk about HUD's new Capital Fund Guidebook and how it can be useful for public housing authorities and HUD field offices. I'll also have a reminder about how you can nominate your favorite affordable housing developments for the Novogratik Developments of Distinction Awards. In new market tax credit news, I'll discuss a new rule in Maine that could prevent the state new markets tax credit from using one-day bridge loans, among other things. After that, we'll move to the historic tax credit section, where I'll talk about the historic tax credit's annual economic impact report. Then, I'll share guidance released by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and other agencies that streamlines environmental and historic preservation reviews in disaster areas. We'll close out with our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, where I'll talk about what a recent solar market report projects for the industry if, that's if, the 30% investment tax credit were allowed to expire in 2017. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu warned congressional leaders in a letter sent last week about what could happen if the federal government reaches the debt ceiling. According to Treasury's calculations, the government's borrowing capacity would be exhausted around mid-November or December. With this in mind, he urged Congress to raise the debt limit as soon as possible to protect the credit of the United States and to remove the threat of default. He explained that raising the debt ceiling does not authorize additional spending. Instead, it allows Treasury to pay for expenditures that were previously approved. Incidentally, two new bills were introduced that would require the Secretary of the Treasury to report to Congress before reaching the debt limit and to prioritize debt payments over other federal obligations. The first bill, H.R. 3442, the Debt Management and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2015, would require him to present a report on the state of the public debt, present proposals to reduce the debt, and present projections of fiscal health and sustainability of major direct spending entitlement programs. A report on the progress of implementing all the President's proposals to adjust the debt-to-gross domestic product ratio would also be required. This legislation was introduced by Representative Kenny Marchant, a Texas Republican, and it has 10 co-sponsors, so far all of them Republicans. The second bill would require the Treasury to pay its debt payments or to make its debt payments in advance of other federal obligations in the event that the statutory debt ceiling is breached. This bill was introduced in February 
by Representative Tom McClintock, a Republican from California. It's H.R. 692, entitled the Default Prevention Act. This bill has 109 co-sponsors at the time of this recording, once again, all Republicans. We've posted copies of the bills for you at www.novaco.com slash hottopics. In other news, the Broad Tax Extenders Coalition, representing a broad range of more than 2,000 associations, businesses, and nonprofit organizations that support the extension of expiring and expired tax provisions, sent a letter to lawmakers last week urging them to extend, enhance, and or make permanent certain expired and expiring tax provisions. As I've previously mentioned, the New Market Tax Credit, the Localizing Tax Credit Minimum 9%, and the Rural Energy Production Tax Credit all expired at the end of 2014. The letter argued that failure to extend the provisions is a tax increase. In other words, it said allowing the provisions to remain expired injects instability and uncertainty in the employment marketplace. Predictability, they argued, is necessary for economic growth. You can find a copy of the letter at www.novico.com slash hottopics. What's the status of extenders in Congress now? Well, the Senate Finance Committee passed Senate Bill 1946, the Tax Relief Extension Act of 2015, on July 21st, but it's awaiting consideration by the full Senate. Meanwhile, in the House, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Paul Ryan of Wisconsin is currently drafting legislation on international tax reform and has announced his intention to address extenders this fall, potentially in the same piece of legislation. You can keep track of these developments via my Twitter account, at Novagravic. In affordable housing news, the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, released a report last week on different ways that Congress could save on housing assistance programs. CBO detailed several options, ranging from changing the number of housing choice vouchers to creating a renter's tax credit. One question the report asked was how policymakers could change federal low-income housing assistance. Among other options, CBO looked at what could happen if lawmakers repealed, that's right, repealed the low-income housing tax credit. Repealing the program would increase revenues by $42 billion from 2016 to 2025. That's according to an estimate by the Joint Committee on Taxation. But those of us who have worked the program since the beginning know that this option doesn't take into account the bigger picture. It only looks at the long housing tax credit program in terms of foregone revenue. It does not consider the additional investments in revenue that are spurred by the incentive. Several reports over the years have shown that the long housing tax credit actually pays for itself over the traditional 10-year scoring period. Still, there are those who argue that eliminating the long housing tax credit and relying solely on programs like Housing Choice Vouchers would cost the government less. I do note, though, that CBO points out that the long housing tax credit offers benefits that vouchers cannot. Unlike vouchers, the long housing tax credit supports construction of new buildings and the substantial rehabilitation of existing buildings. Furthermore, the program's long-term compliance period ensures that units remain affordable for years. And so the low-income tax credit could offer advantages over vouchers in terms of preserving low-income units even when prices in the area increase. So the goal for affordable housing advocates is to show lawmakers the bigger picture of why the low-income tax credit resource must be preserved. For further information about the report, I encourage you to check out my blog at novogradic.wordpress.com. 
In other news, HUD's Office of Public and Indian Housing released a capital fund guidebook last week. The guidebook is meant to ensure that the capital fund program is implemented by public housing authorities and managed by HUD field offices effectively. Some of the topics covered include eligible and ineligible activities and cost limits, and streamlined mixed finance and other public housing requirements. The guidebook also addresses changes to demonstration programs, such as the Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, program. The RAD program, as you know, allows the conversion of public housing units to long-term project-based Section 8 assistance. Now, speaking of the RAD program, by the way, we have a couple of stories exploring the HUD initiative in the upcoming October issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. One story is a progress report on the program, and the other is a column on how to make RAD work for lenders. Our subscribers can expect the issue to arrive in the next couple of weeks, and if you don't receive our monthly magazine yet, there's still time to sign up. Just go to www.novoco.com journal. Shifting gears a bit, I also want to note that there are two days left to submit a nomination for the Novogratic Developments of Distinction Awards. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, the awards honor outstanding achievements in the development of long-term tax credit properties. To submit a nomination, go to www.novoco.com awards. The deadline is this Thursday, September 17th. In New Markets Tax Credit news, the Finance Authority of Maine, also called FAME, adopted an emergency rule to prohibit certain users of qualified low-income community investment proceeds through its state New Markets Tax Credit program. The rule is effective immediately. It also started a 90-day rulemaking process during which the rule could become permanent. In a press release about the rule, FAME specifically mentioned one-day bridge loans, although the rule is actually much broader than that. A one-day bridge loan, or more appropriately referred to as short-term bridge financing, as many listeners know, is a financing mechanism where proceeds are loaned and repaid over a short period of time to refinance funds already invested in a project or business. The loans are allowed under the federal program to be counted as investments eligible for the credit. FAME said the emergency rule, ending the eligibility of one-day bridge loans, is designed to make sure a commensurate level of investments is being made in designated low-income communities. However, FAME was careful to say that most credits issued under the state program have not used one-day bridge loans and have been beneficial to target communities as intended. The new rule states that investments are not eligible for the credit if more than 5% of the investment is used to refinance prior investments, make equity distributions, acquire an existing business, or pay transaction fees. Now again, this only applies to the main state new markets capital investment program. However, my partner Brad Elfick in our Atlanta office notes that it could go much farther and could have nationwide significance should the CFI fund consider ways to limit the use of quality proceeds at the federal level. Moving on now to historic tax credit news, the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program is one of the federal program's most successful and cost-effective community rural programs. This is according to a report released last week by the National Park Service and Rutgers University. For fiscal year 2014 alone, historic tax credit-related investments totaled $4.8 billion. And since its inception, the tax credit has generated $28.6 billion in federal tax receipts. 
$6 billion more than the $22.6 billion in overall credits allocated. From fiscal years 1978 through 2014, those $22.6 billion in federal historic tax credits allocated spurred $117.6 billion in historic rehabilitation. All in all, the investments generated about 2.5 million new jobs. The report is called Annual Report on the Economic Impact of the Federal Historic Tax Credit for Fiscal Year 2014. Supporters of the Historic Tax Credit can use reports such as this to show that not only does the Historic Tax Credit preserve historic structures, it's also a powerful economic driver. In other news, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, in conjunction with several federal agencies, released a guide last week for environmental and historic preservation reviews in presidentially declared disaster areas. The applicant guide is a key step in the unified federal review process. You may remember that the Unified Federal Review for Disaster Recovery was established last summer through a memorandum of understanding among 11 federal agencies. The goal is to streamline reviews of environmental and historic preservation in presidentially declared disaster areas. This guide will help applicants comply with environmental and historic preservation requirements when multiple agencies may be involved in funding or issuing permits during disaster recovery. The guide also outlines information that applicants should submit to federal agencies to help with their review. It was released by the ACHP in coordination with the Department of Homeland Security, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the Council on Environmental Quality. The release of the applicant guide is a key step to help federal agencies expedite environmental and historic preservation reviews. Over the next several years, a steering group will review processes annually and update them as necessary. And you can find the applicant guide at www.historictaxcredits.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, a new report on the solar market shows that solar electric capacity continues its dramatic growth ahead of a scheduled step-down in the Federal Investment Tax Credit at the end of next year. GTM Research and the Solar Energy Industries Association recently released a report on the second quarter of 2015. This report showed that the nation exceeded 20 total gigawatts of solar electric capacity in the first half of 2015. It said that the United States installed nearly 1.4 thousand megawatts of solar capacity in the second quarter. This marks the seventh consecutive quarter in which the United States added more than a gigawatt of photovoltaic installations. SIA also indicated that 2015 is on pace to break records, mostly because the second half of the year is expected to be significantly larger than the first half in terms of deployments. The report predicts a 24% increase in the solar market this year over last year. Utility-scale solar projects still dominate the market, but the report said that residential solar installations have grown 70% compared to last year. Ron Resch, CIA's president and CEO, said that the report highlights how important it is for the nation to maintain policies such as the investment tax credit. Now, as you know, the ITC is scheduled to drop from 30% to 10% in 2017. Resch pointed out that the nation now has enough solar to power 4.6 million homes. Now, what will happen to solar if the current investment tax credit rate is allowed to drop? The report forecasts that the solar market will shrink after 2016 if there's not an extension of the 30% ITC. It says the utility-scale market will drop most dramatically. 
partly because developers are so focused on getting current projects online by the end of 2016 in order to capture the full 30%. It projects a 55% drop in solar installations in 2017. To see the executive summary of the report, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. Hover over the Resources tab and click on Research Center. It's entitled U.S. Solar Market Insight, Q2 2015. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novacode.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novacode.com.